From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Most of us realize that inside all the great electronic devices, from the mobile phone in your pocket to the tablet on your desk, are a bunch of semiconductor chips that we really don't understand. You may have heard about Intel and the microprocessor, thanks to all their advertising, but what you probably don't appreciate are the many other chips required to make things work. Almost every electronic thing we use also needs to keep track of time to function. They require tiny electronic clocks that allow the instructions between the chips to get to where they need to go at the correct moment. These timing devices prevent the microprocessor's marching orders from getting to their destination either too early or too late. On today's episode of Innovators on Tap, I talk with Rajesh Vashisht, who is the CEO of SI Time, based in Silicon Valley. They make the devices that provide the heartbeat in many of our favorite electronics. You can't see them, but your world couldn't operate without them. Rajesh previously led Iconos Communications and has now been a technology CEO for over 20 years. He has led companies through two successful IPOs, as well as through the challenges that arose when the dot-com bubble burst and the economy struggled during the Great Recession. Over time, Rajesh has learned many important lessons and has incredible insight on leadership and innovation. He shares his wisdom on business and life philosophies, including ideas like change and revolutions begin at the margins, the importance of respectful disagreement for finding the best ideas, having strong beliefs that are loosely held, and the importance of suffering to the development of a leader. I want to thank Blue and Gold Ventures at Marquette University for making this conversation possible. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Welcome to Innovators on Tap. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very, very pleased to be here, Chuck. So I know you grew up in India, and then you got an engineering degree, and then you came to the United States to get an MBA. I'm curious, why did you think you wanted an MBA? An MBA was as much an introduction to business, which I did not have, and I did not come from a business background at all. I had never studied supply-demand curve in my life, and I didn't think it was real world. And it was also to get an education on the U.S., because this is where I made all my mistakes on culture and how to talk. And I still remember coming here and being politely told, you want to do this. And I'm thinking, no, I actually don't want to do this. Not understanding what it meant was, this is what you're going to do, right? I, I had to learn how to be American, really. And what better than university? Is there something you take from how you grew up in India that you think you've carried forward that maybe helped shape your leadership or management style? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did come from a privileged family. We did not have money, but we had privilege. My father was in the government. He had, at the peak of his career, 3,000 people reporting to him. And wasn't just my father, but our family was privileged. So I recall one of the professors in the economics department saying to me, 
once, are you a prince or something? It's just the way I sort of thought the world was my oyster. And so that's how I, I thought. And so that's why he asked me that question, because like, you, you, you're carrying yourself as if you own the world. Why? <laughs> what do you have? And I didn't have anything. So you grew up with a confidence and in a belief that anything was possible. Is that a right way to think about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Anything was possible in India, but then coming to the U.S., the, the realm of possibility got multiplied a thousand percent, you know, it, because the U.S. is A, a bigger canvas, and it, the U.S. has basically no limits uh, uniquely over any other country in the world. So you get to the U.S., you have to pick a college, and I know you don't have a lot of money in your pocket. And, and, and I think you've described before how you've, you kind of had to struggle in the beginning. You had to figure out how to make it work. Do you think that's an advantage? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I learned was that I didn't have anything to lose. I had no friends. I had no family. I had no money. I didn't have a green card. I had no immigration standing other than I was a student. I literally had nothing to lose. I moved from India with one suitcase. And when I moved from here to California, I moved with one suitcase, half of which was books, which I've never looked at, you know. So I know you went to California. You went to work uh, in Silicon Valley and you went to work for a startup uh, and you had an experience there. And then you went to work for a different startup. And I think you've said that in one case, the first one was kind of all the things that you thought you shouldn't do or the things maybe what poor management looked like. And the second one was great management. Can, can you give us an idea of what does poor management look like and, and what does great management look like? What's different? Great management was I was there for 30, 30 60 days. And uh, my boss came to me and said, well, this is annual bonus time where we're giving bonuses for the last year. I'm like, yeah, what does that have to do with me? I, I haven't been here for a year. And he said, yeah, that's right. But uh, we decided to give you a bonus anyway. Really? Why? Well, because we see some traits. We think you can do good things for us. And to my shock, I was given a $20,000 bonus. Life-changing, right? And my salary was 65 k And I was given $20,000. I'm like, holy smokes, you guys aren't kidding when you say you want performance and you pay for performance. Just because you spotted a spark, you lit the fire right? You you didn't let the spark go waste to waste. Th that was a huge thing. The second thing was this level of integrity that everybody had in calling out people that was bullshit. Typically in management, what happens is what you see in the office, everybody mouths platitudes and nobody calls it out. Here, the bosses called their own bullshit out and said, that's bullshit. That's not true. And you say, yes, that's not true. The emperor has no clothes. So I'm so glad that you're the one saying the emperor himself says that as opposed to the little kid saying that. And the third was just a drive to say there is no penalty for taking risks. Take risks, but there's no penalty for it. You're protected. You, you brought up an interesting point. Um, you talked about how people were brutally honest with each other. What we call that at Cree was the brutal truths. People would just say exactly what you're thinking. There was no filter. And yet, when I describe that, especially to young managers and leaders, they're really uncomfortable with this idea that, that for some reason there's there's this feeling like someone's supposed to make me feel comfortable. And I think it's just a critical concept. Describe this idea. If you didn't have the facts or the truth on the table, what would have happened? Well, everybody just hides 
from what everybody knows to be, you know, false. And so this poison, there's no other word for it, enters the system. And as soon as the poison enters the system, there is no hope for the system. It takes a lot to flush it out because I wasn't the first CEO of SciTime, the company I'm at. There was a previous CEO who was a very smart person, very, very accomplished person, but not perhaps the best manager. And he didn't introduce poison, but he let averted his eyes when people induced bad behavior. And as soon as you do that, the game is over. Yeah, I think there's a perspective that you can take it as mean or you can take it as a fact. And I think one of the things I learned to survive in that culture, because Cree was very much like that, was it was on you. Each person had to know that they were kind of responsible for taking it the right way. And as long as you and I take it the right way, we can have a brutally honest conversation. But the moment you make it about the person or and, and, it, and take it that way, the whole thing kind of goes off the rails. And so I know I, Intel was famous for, if you're not comfortable here, it's okay if you leave because we don't know how to do this any other way. That's right. And in fact, they would be encouraged to leave. And that's what we do at Saitan. We say, look, this is where we are. We respectfully disagree. Very, very respectfully. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no histrionics. We respectfully disagree. But we do disagree. And if you can't handle disagreement, creating disagreement, that this is not the right place. There is another company out there for you, but this is not it then. So the other part of that is calling out who doesn't belong and letting them go when that happens. Yeah, I think that uh, it becomes very obvious that in the end, any business is really about the people. And you better have the right people on the team or not. And when they're not the right person, I mean, my biggest mistake was waiting too long to make those changes because they never fix themselves. Yeah. And you know, I read Jack Welch's, one of his first few books, maybe it was the first one, the second one, when he was the top of his game. And Jack Welch had, uh, as you know, was called Neutron Jack because he would go in and, you know, the building would be left and people would be disappeared. And so he was considered, in other words, a tough boss. But he said that his biggest failing as a manager was the, that he didn't let people go fast enough. And he said he kept on cutting the time into half and was still too long. And I know that that's probably my biggest failure as well. You fall in love with your people and you don't want to let them go for all the right reasons. You know, my boss once asked me, he said he was a sailor and he said, when do you reef a sail? Which is the time when you trim your sail. And, you know, you come up with a technical answer and his response was the first time you think about it. As soon as you think about reefing a sail, that's when you need to reef the sail. It's as simple as that. That's great advice. So I heard you make a comment that you have no patents, no real-world engineering experience, no cool product ideas, little to no ambition, and no network. But somehow you've taken those five things which everyone thinks you got to have, and you're now on your second successful stint as a CEO. Can you explain what you think makes you successful then? I've thought about it. And wake up sometimes and say, how did I do this and why am I blessed with this? Uh, And frankly, it's not that obvious, but I'm going to try. One is I believe I lead with massive integrity. I am ready to take the blame first over anybody else. That's one. And it it extends to, for example, making commitments. So we have a rule at SciTime that if a manager makes a commitment, however wrong, however boneheaded, 
the company will follow it. The company will stand behind that boneheaded decision simply because the manager did it and we will not penalize the manager. We will not fire the manager. We'll just say, okay, I hope you learned something. Let's move on. So it's the integrity of decision making and personal integrity. The second, I think, is desire for moving the ball forward. We have lots of people in executive teams and managers who can be very critical about something. And I think that's interesting. That's good. But talking about speaking up, when they speak up, I urge them not just to be critical, but to come up with the solution and move the ball forward. However partial the solution is, however flawed the solution is, I'd rather see a solution than somebody being critical because critical doesn't build anything. Solutions build some things. The third is, as you pointed out, hire the best. There are institutions of fantastic learning, IIT in India, Harvard in the United States, Stanford, and so on. Of course, I didn't go to any one of them, but there are people who work for me that did, many of them. And it's not just about the school, it's just about recognizing that there you want to hire people who are better than you. And perhaps the last one is, it's twofold, it's, uh, it's listening and curiosity. I have a deep, deep, deep curiosity about life, about anything in life, about history, about science, about geography, about literature, about arts. That doesn't mean I know that much, it's just that I have a curiosity about it. And therefore, it predicates the desire to just listen, to listen rather than pontificate. So I try not to pontificate. So those are great thoughts. You made another comment that 97% of the startups in Silicon Valley fail. And you had some ideas, some of which you covered like risk-taking and integrity, but you had some other really interesting ideas that I'd like you to talk a little bit more about can you explain this idea of why you want the biggest market size? Well, it's because I learned the lesson the hard way. My first startup, which I also took public for a decent market cap of 600 million, Econos Communications, was 95% market share leader. But we were the market. And the market did not grow at the rate that we thought it would grow. And we grew up at the same time as this company, Atheros Communications, which was in Wi-Fi. And Wi-Fi, as we all know, exploded. And we did not. So they were only 30% of the market. And yet their market cap at its finest was about $3 billion, five times our big. So when I left Econos, my first thing was, okay, I'm going to find the biggest market and I'm going to find a market that is here and now. It's not one that's going to show up. And that's where I landed up at SciTime into the timing world. Can you talk about uh, the value of transformational technology? Yeah. So when so the thing that happens, which is critical, particularly in a large market, is good news is you have a large market. Bad news is you have a Me Too product or a mildly better product. If that's the case, there is a problem here with the technology. Because the market is the market. Markets are a gift to, to companies. It's the place that allows you to fail, the place that allows you to be forgiving of this. But then that means that the technology has to be not 5% better or 10% better, but 2,000% better, 200% better. We were talking earlier about 
the coffee industry or the coffee market is, I don't know, 500 years old. And I'm sure people thought about transforming it, but it took a company like Starbucks to show up and get people to start paying three bucks for a cup of coffee instead of 50 cents for a cup of coffee. And uh, they did it by giving an experience which a McDonald's or a coffee shop could not give at that point. So it has to be so dramatically different or the iPhone did over the BlackBerry or over Nokia phones and so on. We can, we can keep on going on this. So if you're going to disrupt an existing large market, you've got to disrupt it with a big baseball bat. Otherwise, it's not going to, you're, you're never going to make traction. Yeah, and I think you point out something else that's really interesting. So often we get excited about the technology. It does something new or different. But what you're really describing is the technology is nice, but it's what value does it create, right? Exactly. The baseball bat is the value creation. And, you know, I'm not sure we could claim Starbucks has a lot of technology, but they did create incredible value. They made people pay six to 10 times more for a cup of coffee. That's right. And if you focus on, do you really create value or not? And it's pretty obvious. I always tell people if they'll pay you a lot more for it, you've created value. If they won't, you didn't create any value. And I think that's, that's right. what we miss so often. That's right. And you know, you're doing that if you insist on a premium. So we know that iPhones deliver value. You can talk about what the value is, but we all admit that the value exists because people pay twice as much for an Apple iPhone or five times as much for a cup of coffee from Starbucks as they did from, uh, you know, Denny's. So in the same way at Sightime, we always get our customers to pay a premium. Otherwise, we I tell my salespeople and my business folks that if they won't pay a premium, then you're not having the right conversation. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a reason why the semiconductor business, uh, especially those that are publicly traded, the investors are pretty savvy and they look at one number and they care about your gross margin more than anything else. That's right. And you can argue all day long whether that's the right metric, but over a long period of time, it's a pretty empirical way to decide, does your thing have a lot more value than the other guys? And if it does, you have a high gross margin. And if it doesn't, you don't. And it's black and white as that seems, you know, there's a reason that that's been a pretty good indicator for the last few decades. Exactly right. And so it, I started at Sightime in 2007, and we built up a business around 20-ish million, sub-20 million. But it floundered at that 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 million for three and a half years that were the most miserable three years that I spent because I couldn't figure out why. And when we figured out why, which was that our value proposition wasn't overwhelmingly great, we went... In that one year, we went from being 17, 18 million to 40 million instantly. My previous company had no such issue. Went from zero to 3 million, 3 million to 30 million, 30 million to 70 million to 120 million. Boom, just like that, because the value proposition was so overwhelming. So I hadn't learned that hard way lesson, but I learned it in this company. And since then, all we do is always provide that overwhelming value. How do you differentiate between the desire for success and the desire to be right amongst your team? Yeah, <laughs> great use of words. People will always tell me they want to be successful, particularly the engineering types. But then what they're really saying is they're arguing for being right. I remember when we, we thought we were the leaders in a particular technology in this company, and I had 
dinner with the CEO of a competitor who said that they had already achieved something that my engineer said could not be done. Literally said, can't be done, boss. It's against the laws of physics. I know you don't understand this, but let me explain it to you because I'm the smart guy and you're just a businessy guy. And so I had dinner with this guy, a competitor, who said, yeah, we're shipping the product. In, in three months, we're going to be shipping this product. And I came back and got my team and said, we, are, we cannot call ourselves the leaders if they're people who are doing something we said cannot be done. So right now, I want you to give me the argument as if you were members of their team. I want you to make their argument. So they would say something like, well, they want to do this. No, 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 not they. We want to do this. Talk as if you were them. Tell me if you were heading their engineering team, why you would tell me why you're successful. And took them a little while and they did. And I said to them, well, then you're going to go do that. And I want an answer in a week. And they came back and they said, okay, we'll see, feed him some bullshit. And they said, what's going to cost you X million It's going to co- take three years to do it. And they said, eh, he doesn't have the money to do it. So it's not going to happen. And I said, we're going to do it. Don't worry what, where the money is coming from. You go off and do it. It didn't take us that many years. It's taken us twice the amount of time. The other company has gone out of business because actually they couldn't do it. But we are doing it. We are doing it. And that's the part about they were so busy in the beginning telling me how it couldn't be done because they were right. That's why people have said this before is that don't listen to the experts because the experts are wrong. Yeah, I think the uh, the phrase I like to use is the problem with experts is they know what's not possible. That's right. And in fact, you know, we built a whole business strategy around whatever someone said can't be done. That was one of the things we were going to work on because that's the market opportunity, right? If no one else can do it, that's how you're going to differentiate yourself. If you do the same thing as everyone else, by definition, it's not nearly as hard. So back to this idea, though, of how people think, right? There, I mean, some people can get their head around this idea of being focused on success, but I think a lot of us are trained to focus on being right. How do you get people to think differently or do you just try to hire people that think differently coming in? How do you go about that? Well, the hiring part is a hit and miss. So you try to hire people who think differently, but then you get seduced along the way by their technical competence or by their charming, you know, speech. But when you have them, however they are, I don't think you can change people, but I think you can be vigilant at making sure back to the concept of moving the ball forward or what you're calling uh, being successful rather than being right. And the team constantly slips out into it. Even the best performing uh, people slip. Even me, I slip out of it because it's more comfortable to be to be right. But one thing we do have is pressure from below. Uh, my other philosophy is that change begins, revolutions begin at the margins. The Bolsheviks... The, literally the meaning of the Bolshevik is minority. There was a majority called the Mensheviks. Nobody remembers the Mensheviks. We only remember the Bolsheviks. Today, if men can wear a pink shirt, it's because gay people in San Francisco wore pink shirts. If young men wear shorts or pants that sag to their knees, it's because some people in, in the inner city wore that. If you have great music, rap, it comes from the inner city and so on. So Revolutions change begins at the edges. It's not at the center. 
So listen to the edges and where it transforms itself is listen to the most junior people in the in the company, talk to them, give them a voice, tell them that they can speak openly. They may believe you, they may not believe you, but give them the voice as much as you can to speak up. So when we sit in conference rooms like this, we insist that everybody have a seat literally at the table. So obviously sometimes because you see the junior people take the walls and hug the walls and senior people come and sit at the center, we expand the circle, literally expand the circle till everybody's seated. We also insist that everybody speak up and not just say, I agree or disagree, but why, where, who said. So we give voice to people and I try as much as possible to keep senior people from not talking at these meetings. That doesn't happen. It just happens to be dominant personalities come to the fore. But that's one way of doing that. How has your definition of leadership changed over time? Well, I read once that the more the boundaries of my knowledge, the greater the the shores of my ignorance. So the more I know, the less I know. Literally, I mean, it's not just an aphorism. I just think there are very few certainties in my life, in our lives, in anybody's lives. And the sooner we recognize those, the better off we are. So when anybody makes a, back to the experts, when they make an absolute statement about anything, instantly I disbelieve them. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. I'm smiling because I think it took me a while to learn that as well. I think that if you just assume that they're wrong, at least as a starting point, you create a different kind of conversation. And if you assume that you're, you don't know, if you take those two perspectives, it actually makes you better at listening and looking for things. And you're, you're not doing confirmation bias stuff. Now you're starting to get really at the problem. So, uh, so you know, I came across another phrase, which is strong beliefs loosely held, right? So I remind my team that when I say something strongly, which I tend to do, they are strong beliefs, but they are loosely held. So they have the opportunity to influence it. What is your biggest failure in your career? Not having enough uh, confidence sooner. I came to confidence and I was about 35 years old. Confidence in business, as it were. Because, you know, one of the titles of a book were to be written about being a CEO, and I've been a CEO half my career for 20 years out of an almost 40-year career, I would say is the reluctant CEO because I thought I don't know any better and there are smarter people than me who know a lot more. And it was only later that I realized that, wait, the smart people don't have the answers either. In fact, nobody has the answers. There are no adults in the room. To me, that realization that nobody has the answers and therefore I should, you know, that's why an Elon Musk has been able to achieve so much, so much more than I have. Um, and, and, and kudos to him just because I think that they came to that realization sooner. What's the best part about being a CEO? The best part about being a CEO is that you see the elements of the orchestra individually. You see the trombone, you see the wind, you see the strings and then you see the whole symphony playing. You see the constituents, and then you see the whole. And you go between the constituents and the whole, and it's just the most gratifying thing. Uh, what's the worst part about being a CEO? 
The worst part about being a CEO is shouldering the burden of people's well-being. So before we were a public company CEO, I had the responsibility of the team and then the team's families, as it were. Now I have the responsibility of investors who have put their money and are looking at me and saying, I hope you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And that's a huge responsibility to carry. And I do it gladly, but it is a burden. Do you think the job's a lonely job? Absolutely. But I think most CEOs relish that loneliness. Many CEOs I know are really loners. They, they put up a like, you know, they put up a good front of gregariousness and charm, but they're really people who are best with their own thoughts. If you were going to give advice to young entrepreneurs, what are the two or three things you'd tell them to keep in mind if they want to go start their own business? First of all, do it now. Don't wait for greater wisdom, greater knowledge, greater experience, greater this, greater that. Do it now. My friend who's a billionaire, his only job ever was CEO. He graduated, got his PhD from Carnegie Mellon at 23, and that's his, that's his job title, CEO. The second is maintain the highest level of integrity in any way and every way that you can think about it. That is your lodestar. That is your rock. And that level of integrity and honesty makes life simple and easy. And the third is, do you know, treat people with as much respect as you can muster. Yeah, when it comes to integrity, I think the thing I learned is that no matter what you think in that moment, and, and running a public company being judged quarter to quarter can have a lot of pressures, but there just aren't any shortcuts. Yeah. Uh, the first time you think there is one, it will only work against you. And uh, sleeping at night is probably the most important concept <laughs> is to know you did the right thing. Yeah. Innovation. I know it's been a big part of all the businesses you've been involved in. And I know you have said that you're not necessarily the one with who creates the ideas, but you, you had a lot of people that helped you do that. But do you think innovation is, is it a mindset or is it a process? Aren't they sort of the same thing? Because if they are, if it is a mindset, then you're all about creating bits and pieces of innovation all around. So you look at the person who invented the chronometer, uh, John Harrison, I believe in 1720, he was a craftsman and he spent 20 years, but he had to have the mindset but then he had to have the process. So it's sort of related. It's that hankering. It's that never-ending quest, right? It's Edison's, I don't know how many designs he threw away of the light bulb. Every time claiming, I don't know how true it is, that now he knew the ways that it wouldn't work. Yeah, I think some would call that failure. And I think what he called it was learning. And I think there's a specialty, at least in the innovators I got to work with, they... They tried a lot of stuff that didn't work, but they almost always had that attitude or that spirit about them. Hey, I learned something I didn't know, and that's going to help me apply it to the next thing. And at least in my sense was, is that was kind of a key characteristic of at least the people who drove the best ideas in our company. Similar experience exactly. for you? Exactly. And you can, you can smell it because there's no defensiveness. If they're being defensive, then they're just covering their butts. Public company or private company, which do you enjoy running more? Oh, public company any day, in spite of all the pressures, simply because the reach, the influence, the access to finance, practically speaking, 
that helps you transform the future. My vision stated is that Saitime, for example, is a 50-year company to come. And so that can only happen as a public company. But on the other hand, I met the CEO of NVIDIA when it was barely a three-year-old company, and now it's an $80, $100 billion company. I remember Intel when Intel was only a $4 billion company, and now it's a $150 billion company, and it's already 50 years old. So 50 years before you know it, it's here. Can you comment on this conversation that is really popular in the Valley, but it's actually starting to creep across the country where it reminds me a bit of 2000 and Y2K when we had the internet bubble. And I know you and I at least are old enough to remember that. A few of our guests here today are as well. But it seemed like valuation was more important than value creation. And I feel like this whole idea around the unicorns has become... I meet companies and they're so excited to tell me what they're worth. And I ask them, well, how much do you sell or how much money do you make? And they're like, ah, none yet, but they're excited about what they're worth. And I, to me, I'm a bit of a skeptic. I think ultimately you have to make some money. But what's your perspective on that? Absolutely. My first company, when we started it, we started in the height of the bubble and 16 people, we got funded at a valuation of approximately 90 million and within a year, we had offers for $720 million when we were two years away from product. And then uh, the, came the downturn, and uh, all our VCs fled, and they basically gave me some money and told me, hey, you're a good CEO, you'll figure out how to do it. So, you know, a left-handed compliment if there ever was one. What happened then was that we got money, but we got crushed all the way down to 25 million valuation. And the best advice that the Sequoia Capital partner, Mike Gogan, uh, who was on our board, gave me was exceptionally good advice. He said, companies don't die because of poor valuation. They die if they don't have financing. So you go get money at whatever valuation you get. And one day, when you've created enough value you'll get the valuation. Do you think some of these companies are overfunded? That if they had less capital, so some of the unicorns have incredible amounts of capital for where they're at. And I wonder sometimes if they might not be better off with less money because it would force them to focus or make tougher decisions. What do you think about that? Absolutely, right? I mean, you know, if you're going to make great Bordeaux, you don't water the, the, grave, the, the vineyard. Right. In fact, when I went to Bordeaux, they sort of sneered at us in Napa and said, oh, you guys water your vineyards. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? And they said, oh, the, the wine must suffer. It must suffer eh, to make great wine. So the, the, to make a great company, you must suffer. If you're not suffering, how do you extract and make great Bordeaux? Yeah, and I think what we forget sometimes is people learn when they go through that suffering. And I think we can talk about it all we want in school and other places, but living through it, living through those days when we thought the company might not go on, there's something that happens to you. It transforms you in a way, as the French say, that that learning to suffer actually can create this really incredible, I don't know if it's insight or perspective or drive or something, I think, that helps make you successful in the future. Yeah, it strips the question to its essentials. And it forces you to dig deep inside you for who you are. 
and what you do. And I had to go do that when Econos almost went down. I had to do that when Saitam almost went down. And you dig deep and say, what do I really want? What is good? What is good enough? How can I do this? What questions are essential? And so the best part about when I did my second time CEO was the utter calm about knowing what I could do. I had no frenetic activity in myself, no need to prove to anybody because I felt I could handle it. And I wasn't ready for what was thrown. And it was a greater challenge, of course. But it was a certainty that you have that in you, that confidence. And that's the biggest gift of success of being a startup is seeing nothing and then building something and then saying, I built it along with other people. I built it. I remember my first IPO standing you know, on the 77th floor of Citibank building in New York City and saying, oh my God, we just created a $300 million company. And I thought I was more excited about that than when we got an offer for $720 million when we were two years away because that wasn't real. It felt like funny money. But this was real. This was a natural consequence. You take step A, then B and C and D, and here you are. It's now 300 million. Yes, of course, naturally. And I'm guessing here, but I think we use, when we go public, we use those valuations to say, hey, we've accomplished something. But is it fair to say it's, but it's really not about the money? It's never about the money. It's not about the money. The money is good. I love the money. I'll take the money all day long. Everybody wants it. It's good for a lot of things. But money is just a way of metricizing, if there's such a word, or putting a metric to it. Because everybody understands, you know, money is a social construct that we have created over the last 10,000 years, where it's the only thing that humanity agrees on. Doesn't matter whether you're king, queen, monarch, peasant, you know, red, white, blue, communist, you all agree about money. It's a social construct pieces of paper, pieces of metal that are going to give you value. Thank you for being here. Your perspective is just incredible. And I think your insights, a lot of people can use them to hopefully not only help themselves, but maybe go about their challenges with a different perspective. So thank you for being here today. And we wish you the best of luck in your business. Thank you. And I think you did a spectacular job in asking. And I think you did it because you came from a place where you lived these answers. You might as well. I could have been on the other side asking the same questions, I think. Well, it's it's certainly fun to be able to relate to your stories. Uh, you have some ways of describing some things that uh, we'll want to reuse because you. I think it really helps frame it for people. And that's, that's the point of the podcast. The podcast is trying to help share these insights in ways that we can help another generation of innovators and entrepreneurs be successful. So thanks for being here. Happy to help. Thanks to Rajesh for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing some great life lessons that apply to any entrepreneur in any field. As he said, I'd rather see a solution than someone being critical because critical doesn't build anything. Solutions build something. His advice is a great reminder that it is easy to be critical, but the real transformational ideas are not the critiques. They are the solutions to the problems that make other people's lives better. It reminds me of the great Theodore Roosevelt quote, It is not the critic that counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
and please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues because I think we all know things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at www.innovatorsontap.com. We are always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world. Thank you.